This morning we come to Luke chapter 20 from verse 9 down to verse 19. This is what God's word says. And he began, Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir, let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, would you speak to us now by the word that you have spoken once for all through your beloved Son? Would you give us ears to hear his voice? And would you open our eyes to see his face? We ask this in his name. Amen. While the people of Israel were displaced from their land and held under captivity in the foreign land of Babylon in the 6th century BC, God sent a dream to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And he showed him an image of this massive, terrifying body, which from top down was gold at the head, and then silver, bronze, and down to iron and clay at its feet. And the prophet Daniel interpreted the dream as God revealed it to him, explaining that each part and material of that image was representing different kingdoms of earth. The head of gold was Babylon, but there would arise other kingdoms to take its throne as the world empire of the Mesopotamian region in the centuries to come. But the main point of this dream was not ultimately about these earthly kingdoms, but the real revelation was when Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of this dream, saw a little stone that ended up striking the image on its feet, and the whole thing came crumbling down. And this stone, as Daniel explained, represented God's kingdom, which, though seemingly small and insignificant at first, that it would have the power to triumph over all other worldly kingdoms, no matter how strong their opposition, no matter how great their resistance and hostility to the stone. And this stone was what the prophet Isaiah called earlier, the stone of offense. But what may be surprising Uh, By the time we come to the New Testament era, what we discover in the life and ministry of Jesus is that the primary battle and resistance 
that was waged against this stone of offense. The entities that were the most offended by this promised stone were not pagan foreign worldly kingdoms, but it was the kingdom of Israel, the supposed people of God who identified themselves with the one true God of Israel. The greatest enemies of Christ, it was not the empire of Rome, but it was the empire of religion, of the Jewish Pharisees, those who believed in the real and only God, unlike all the other pagan nations. And as Jesus foretells in this parable, which some have called a a prophetic autobiography, their opposition against Jesus was so monstrous that they would resort to the flat-out murder of the beloved Son of God. That's what this parable is about. It's a confrontation of the Jewish religious leaders in which Jesus addresses them directly and exposes the degree of their hostility toward him. And so hostile to the point where they will fulfill these prophetic words by murdering Jesus. But let's ask the question, why were the Pharisees and chief priests and scribes and the whole religious gang of leaders, why were they so hostile to Jesus? I mean, yes, because uh, Jesus threatened their, their power and their stronghold over the entire religious machinery of first century Judaism. But, you know, they weren't, this wasn't just a game of politics. There was something deep-seated within their souls. What drove their opposition? Well, it's because these religious leaders were the living epitome of attempting to pursue God and know God and access his blessings apart from being rooted in the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. This stubborn unwillingness to embrace Christ was because of this deep spiritual pride within them. That they, they refused to believe the notion that they were woefully depraved. That they were people who had dire problems. They didn't want to believe that about themselves. And instead, they insisted that God should bless them for who they are in themselves and not in Christ. And so as, as spiritual and earnest as it might seem on the outside, because after all, they're pursuing God, the real God, the one God, and seeking Him, they actually end up rejecting the God they supposedly seek after. Because they're driven by a pride that, that is fiercely opposed to the gospel of God's undeserved grace for depraved sinners. You see, the visceral hatred that the Jewish leaders had against Jesus, it's meant to show us how incompatible is the grace of God with the pride of man. And how, how we are helplessly dependent on the person and work of Jesus Christ to know God at all, to relate to him at all. You can try with all your might, all your flesh to please God, but if you try to do so apart from resting your soul in Jesus, it will be a fruitless endeavor. Because those who are in the flesh cannot please God, Romans 8.8. 8. We have no power in ourselves to love God or even desire God. This is how badly we've been corrupted by sin. And unless you humble yourself and admit what a rotten, wretched sinner you really are. 
You cannot receive the grace of God because you will not receive the grace of God. Because you will not believe that you need the grace of God. And that was the psyche of the Pharisees, chief priests, the scribes, the whole religious authority, uh, which led to their utter rejection of Christ. All the way to the final and logical conclusion of the ultimate rejection by murdering him, as prophetically foretold by this parable regarding a vineyard. Now, when we read this parable, it's quite obvious that it's intended to be an allegory. I think we could gather that from, its, from our first initial reading where each of the characters in this parable represent different persons or, or groups of people. The man who planted the vineyard, the owner, is obviously God, because his beloved son, whom he sends, is, of course, Jesus, God the Son. And the servants that are sent by the owner repeatedly to call the tenants to account, they are the prophets that God sent over and over again to the nation throughout the history of the Old Testament to call them to repentance. And the tenants or the vine dressers who are entrusted to care for God's vineyard, as signified by this owner being away, not because God was absent, but that it was entrusted uh, to these tenants, they represent the leaders of Israel, who serve as representatives of the whole nation. Which then brings us to the vineyard itself, which symbolizes the nation of Israel. You see, when the Jews heard this parable, and they heard the word vineyard, they knew that it wasn't just some random metaphor, but it was a word that had the entire history and existence of the nation embedded in it and illustrated by it. Now put it this way. If ancient Israel had a national flag, uh, the symbol on it would have been a vineyard, just like a grizzly bear on the California flag. Or for the United States, I mean, we don't have an animal on the flag, but the national mascot, if you will, is a bald eagle. And so in the same way, that's what a vineyard was for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Because this was the imagery God used all throughout Scripture to refer to his people. We read Psalm 80 at the beginning of this worship service. And there in Psalm 80, verse 8, God, uh, it says that God brought a vine out of Egypt, a vine and you drove out the nations and you planted it. See, Israel was God's vineyard. So as to signal what? That this was, this nation was God's garden replanted on earth. Because it was through Israel that he chose to dwell in them and dwell amongst them. That's what made the Garden of Eden such paradise. God and man in perfect fellowship. It was the hope. Israel was the hope of returning to Eden once again. And mind you, that's why, remember, the, the tabernacle, we've talked about it at length, I think, on, on our uh, Thursday nights. The tabernacle was, was designed with garden-like aesthetics. There was a lampstand shaped like a tree with branches, flowers, and blossoms. There were images of cherubim all over, just like the garden. And the gate was situated at the east entrance, just like the Garden of Eden, as we see in Genesis. You see, Israel was called to be God's garden on earth. This was God's wonderful and gracious plan for humanity. But the way that the rest of the Old Testament unfolds, it's not such a pretty picture. Because although they were God's chosen nation and enjoyed all the privileges of knowing the one true God and having access to Him, what happened? Their hearts 
still went astray from God time and time again. Which is why God had to send prophets over and over again to call them to return, but they didn't listen. The, the vineyard of God kept spiraling down into greater depths of sin and depravity. Hence, in what is perhaps the most illustrative passage regarding this picture is Isaiah 5, where the prophet takes this imagery and says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, God dug it, and cleared it of stones, and planted it with choice vines, and he built the watchtower in the midst of it, and hewed out a wine vat in it. God did all of these things, and he looked for it to yield grapes. He sent servants, just as in this parable, to reap some of the fruit, but it yielded sour grapes. What's up with that? God labored to bring Israel out of Egypt. And that land that he had promised to them, he tilled the soil of the land. He so lovingly prepared it for his people by removing every obstacle and constructing the most optimal of environments with all of his promises of blessing and provision and presence. And so there he tenderly planted his beloved chosen nation, blessing them with his most intimate care. And yet for all that, his very beloved vineyard bore rotten fruit. They dishonored him. They were unfaithful to him. They rejected him. They despised him. They went after other gods. I mean, listen to this lament as God says further in Isaiah 5. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? God says, I, I, I gave these people everything. I revealed myself to them. They had the oracles of God, the true knowledge of their creator and redeemer through my word, which all the other nations didn't have because they were lost in darkness. And from the very first generation that entered that land, every single one of them all grew up, spent all their years in that holy environment, under God's instruction, under his blessings, under his care. Because remember, the initial older generation that came directly out of Egypt, they all died off before entering the land. So the very first generation from within that land, they were born and raised as members of God's house. And for all that, God says, I saw no fruit. My vineyard that I poured myself over, it only produced sour and spoiled grapes. What was meant to be the garden of God, the, the hope of another Eden on earth. What happened was, as, as Jeremiah 12.10 says, God's pleasant vineyard turned into a desolate wilderness. Just like what Adam did. Israel was called to be a new Adam. But it failed just like the old Adam. Why? Because, friends, the heart of man is desperately sick and wicked. Man is sinful, not just on the surface, whereby what he needs is just to, a change of circumstance and needs to be placed in, in, in a spiritual, godly environment, and then he'll start behaving better because he's secretly good inside. No, 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 no. Man is sinful 
down to his very nature. He is rotten to the core, corrupted by sin. And that's why you can have everything, all the external blessings from God, but still walk away from him, resist him, rebel against him. You can grow up in a Christian home all your life. Go to a Christian private school all your life. Go to a Christian college. Join your Christian fellowship. Surround yourself with all of these Christian influences your entire life. But for all that, still remain spiritually lifeless. Because the problem is not out there. But the problem is in here, in the heart. This is the nature of sin, you see. It's how sinful we really are. Sin pollutes our hearts down to the core such that there is embedded within us this irrational resistance against God, this enmity toward Him. Sin produces in our hearts a bitterness against God, apathy towards God, perhaps even blaming God for our own depravity. I mean, that's, that's what Adam did when, when he fell into sin, didn't he? Remember what Adam said? He said to God, the woman you gave me made me eat of the fruit. Now that was a big no-no because he broke rule number one, never blame your wife. But more than that, what he was ultimately blaming, it was not his wife, but it was God. Before sin had corrupted his heart, what did Adam do in Genesis 2 when God created Eve and gave Eve to him as such a gift? He rejoiced. This at last is the bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh. He rejoiced in God's gift. But now, tainted with sin, he says, you gave me this woman. And she made me sin. No, she didn't. This is how rotten we are, you see. Down to our very roots. There is this hatred of God hidden deep underneath. And it's for this reason that no matter how much God sent prophets to Israel, the, the, the nation and its leaders suppressed the truth. They behaved just like the tenants in this parable who beat the first servant, mocked the next, and wounded and shamed the third. And this is exactly how Second Chronicles 36 describes the history of, of the nation of Israel and Judah, that the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and his dwelling place. It was out of God's love, his forbearance, his long-suffering, his patience that he kept calling them to return. He sent prophet after prophet. But what does it say? They kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. You see, this parable serves as a parabolic summary of the Old Testament. And what it all shows is that the Old Testament nation of Israel is really one long exposition, a divine case study on human depravity. Namely, how utterly incapable we are of producing the fruit of genuine obedience and love and faithfulness to God. Because our hearts are rotten with sin with senseless hostility toward God who is good and kind to his people. Israel proves that you can have every spiritual privilege and all the access to God, but end up becoming, as Ezekiel 5-7 says, 
even more wicked than the godless nations around them. This is what God said of His people in the Old Testament. He said, look, it's not just that you imitated the other pagan nations in their wickedness, but you exceeded their wickedness. This is what we are as sinners. We are fruitless vines because we are dead inside. Spiritual death flows through our veins and that's why we bear dead fruit. There's no power of spiritual life within us, within our flesh, to produce the fruit of love and obedience to God. You see, we are more sinful than we can possibly imagine. The heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Even we can understand it of ourselves. That within our sinful selves, we are all hopelessly withered vines, incapable of bearing holy fruit. We're just lifeless, shriveled twigs, irreversibly displeasing to God and fit only to be thrown into the fire. And then in the face of all of that, what has God done? That in His pity and in His immeasurable compassion, even as God's prophets were announcing His lament and judgment on such desolate vineyards, it was through those same prophetic lips that God also announced His gospel promise of His amazing undeserved grace. That Isaiah was the same one who said in Isaiah 27, the day is coming for the redemption of Israel, where in that day it will be a pleasant vineyard. I, the Lord, will be its keeper and vine dresser, and there will be no wrath. And Israel shall take root and blossom and fill the whole world with fruit. How? Because Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And in that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Jesse being David's father, King David, the promise was that there will be a new David and in him will be rooted God's new and redeemed vineyard that will be able to bear fruit. That God would raise this desolate vineyard back to spiritual life by replanting it from within. And in the words of this parable, it says, God says, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. And this is why Jesus said in John 15, 1, the verse that we all know, I am the true vine and my father is a vine dresser. This wasn't some isolated metaphor, but those very words were an explosive summary of the gospel. That's why Jesus says, I am the true vine. He came to redeem the the withered, lifeless vineyard by being the true vine who would bear perfect fruit by his life of perfect obedience and love to God. And he calls out to the dead branches, come, abide in me, attach yourself to me, graft yourself to me. And only then can you have true spiritual life of knowing God and delighting in his love in and through me. Acknowledge your spiritual deadness. Confess your helpless sinfulness. And place your trust in my righteousness. My obedience accomplished for you and freely given to you by faith. But you must confess that you are dead inside. Decayed to the core. And only then will you seek the life that is in me. And graft yourself to me, the true vine. Verse 
That's the gospel. You know, we often say this phrase as Christians in the context of evangelism. We say to people, oh, let, let, let Jesus come into your heart. But, you know, when we say that, we can unwittingly suggest a kind of backwards understanding of salvation. Because salvation is not so much, let Jesus come and enter into you. But it's come out of yourself, deny yourself, and enter into Jesus. Enter into Jesus' heart and be saved. Attach yourself to Him. Cling to His life, His death, His resurrection, His righteousness as your only hope and confidence. That's the gospel. The heart of man is rotten down to his very nature and the only hope is to graft ourselves to a new holy vine. This is who Jesus is, the holy son of God who came to redeem us from our sin and our wretchedness. Salvation is to be in Christ and not in yourself any longer. It's to say with Paul, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now I live by faith in Him, no longer in myself. And it's because we are in Christ, united to Him. It is therefore that we have every blessing, the complete washing away of our sins, God's perfect pleasure over us, and His Spirit at work within us to supernaturally empower our love and obedience to Him. And it's all found in dying to ourselves, recognizing that we're dead already, and we, we acknowledge that we're, we're, we're dead inside, and so we find new life in Jesus Christ. But that's the thing. That's the stumbling block. This true gospel salvation is what's intolerable and unacceptable to the spiritually proud. Because they want to be blessed for who they are in themselves and not in Christ. And again, that's what fueled the unbelief and hostility of the religious leaders. That's why, as the parable illustrates, when God sent forth His Son, they reacted most violently against Him. Because all the servants before, all the prophets, they were just foretelling glimpses of God's grace that would one day be revealed in full. But when the Son came, He was the gospel of God's grace incarnate. And it was in Him that the grace of God was grinding against human pride in full force saying you are unrighteous trust in my righteousness and so the tenants in the parable they reasoned among themselves in verse 14 this is the heir let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours now it's kind of difficult to understand what their logic is here i mean how is killing him going to give them the inheritance and we can conjecture all we want about, oh, maybe there was a, some, some legal um, uh, mode of do, doing that uh, because maybe they were thinking of squatting the thing and uh, they would get it because the owner is gone and, and the son is dead. But it's hard to understand what, what, they're, what they're thinking. And perhaps that's the point, that rejecting Christ is really illogical and irrational. But at the very least, whatever their particular reasoning was, Let's notice this, that in this parable, they did what they did because they believed that 
somehow by doing so, they would attain the full inheritance of the son by their own murderous hands, apart from the son. And so forget about the whole transaction, the whole mechanism of the thing for a second. Look at the intent and goal of these wicked tenants. Isn't that exactly what the religious leaders believed and thought? Isn't this exactly what we see from the unbelieving Jews? That they wanted to seize for themselves the divine inheritance and eternal blessing which belongs only to the Son. And only in the Son can we become sons of God that we in Christ might become rightful heirs with Him. But the spiritually proud Jews, they were determined to attain it somehow, erasing the Son out of the picture. And so they threw him out and killed him. This is the hostility of spiritual pride. It cannot tolerate the grace of God. Because to receive God's undeserved grace would mean having to acknowledge one's own wickedness and deserve judgment and freely receive it all as a marvelous gift. God's grace is most offensive to those who have grown up in the church, who believe that God should be pleased with them for how churchly their lives have been. These are the slowest to humble themselves and acknowledge their shamefulness and repent. And by contrast, it's the kind, the type of tax collectors and prostitutes in the world who are quicker to repent because it's so outwardly clear that they're sinful and wretched, they can't hide it. They know it. In fact, the whole indictment of this parable can be better understood when we look at Matthew's parallel account where he actually records two parables back to back that are interrelated in Matthew 21. And one, of course, is this parable of the wicked tenants of the vineyard. But just before that is another parable also concerning a vineyard called the parable of two sons. And the punchline there, I won't go into it, but I'll just give you the punchline. The punchline is that when is, is that Jesus, after telling the parable, he turns to the religious leaders and says explicitly, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness. That is that he preached true righteousness and he, repented, he preached the message of repentance because no one is righteous. But you did not believe in him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes, they believed in him. They were convicted of sin and righteousness. And so they were the ones who could see through the eyes of broken-hearted faith the beauty of Jesus, the great physician who had come not for the well but for the sick. He came not for the righteous but to call sinners to repentance. But to these self-righteous religious authorities, Jesus condemns them and reveals the consequence of their proud unbelief verse 15 the the wicked tenants threw the son out of the vineyard to kill him and now jesus comments what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others oh this got them really mad they knew exactly what jesus was saying you don't belong to Israel. To the leaders of Israel. He said, you don't belong to Israel. The vineyard of Israel is going to go to others. 
to Gentiles. And again, Jesus says it very explicitly in Matthew's version. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Because only those who abide in the true vine can produce fruits and be called the true Israel. Even all these Gentiles. God will give his vineyard to those who seek him by faith through his son. Even to pagan nations who worship other idols. The gospel will go to them and they'll repent and believe. The gospel went to the Jews first. But now he says the gospel will go to them. They will believe and they will be the ones to receive the full inheritance of God's kingdom because they will become sons of God in and through the Son of God. And the Thessalonians were such a wonderful evidence of that, weren't they? Remember how Paul begins his first letter to them. He says, I thank God constantly as I hear how the gospel came to you guys and you turned from idols to serve the living and true God and now you live waiting for his son from heaven. It all happened just as Jesus declared to the religious leaders. The kingdom of God was given to everyone else who would believe in the Son. But when they heard Jesus insinuate such a thing, you could hear an audible gasp. And that's why they said, surely not anything but that. Now what's crazy is I don't think they were as bothered about the fact that they would be destroyed, but they were more concerned about the fact that the vineyard would go to someone else, to the Gentiles. I mean, it was the most offensive thing they could hear. Again, because of their spiritual pride. How dare God take it away from us? How dare He pry the kingdom off our fingers? It belongs to us. We're entitled to it by virtue of who we are. And they lost it when they heard all this. And that's why down in verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests, they sought to lay hands on Him at that very hour. It was when they heard all this, that's what just broke the fuse in their heads. Because they, they perceived... They knew that Jesus was talking about them in this parable. They, but they feared the people, so they couldn't do it in broad daylight, so they spent the next few days scheming and preparing to destroy him and so fulfill the words of this prophetic parable. But as the religious leaders objected to all that Jesus was saying, he looked them in the eye and said, you guys are the fulfillment of this verse in Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You've rejected me, the root of Jesse, the very root of God's vineyard, the cornerstone of God's temple, the one stone that if you're missing it, the whole thing collapses. That's what the cornerstone was. And Jesus was saying, in effect, you're no different than the builders of the Tower of Babel. Trying to build up your own city with your own hands, all in vain. But all along, the cornerstone that you've rejected, the grace of God in Jesus Christ, you reject to your own peril and destruction. And the kingdom of God will go to those who seek His grace by faith. And isn't this Paul's whole argument in Romans chapter 9, from verse 30? He says, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, they, they pursued it with all their might. 
But they did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And then so Paul quotes, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Those who come to Christ with their hearts already broken to pieces in contrition and repentance, God will build them up. He will heal them and restore them and he will make them a pillar in his temple, members of the body of Christ. But those who refuse to be brokenhearted, they will be broken to pieces and crushed by God's righteous judgment. And then when it's too late, they will realize how miserably sinful and unclean they really are before God who is holy. And what an eternal regret that will be to have rejected Jesus, the true vine, the cornerstone. Like if you're here today and you haven't really believed that you are a wretched sinner in need of God's undeserved grace, this parable is God's wake-up call to you. And maybe some of you, 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 you've been in the church for so long. And yet for some reason you don't get it because you refuse to get it. You're even trying to seek after God and, and secure your place in His kingdom or secure some sense of His approval and acceptance apart from the complete helpless dependence on all that Jesus is for someone like you. And the question I want to ask you is, do you understand that you are someone who needs God's mercy? Who needs His pity? Is it too beneath you to think that you are pitiful before God, who is holy and righteous? Listen, if this is you, as you are right now, you have to understand, you are not lovable to God because God's eyes are too pure to look upon sin and evil but friend that is the glory of God's love that he so loved the unlovable like you and me that he even sent his son to be murdered for them this is what is so precious and praiseworthy about the gospel of Christ and his love for his church the bride that, that, he, that Christ came down from heaven not to pursue the most beautiful bride that he could find, but he came down seeking after the ugliest bride, the most abominable bride, the most hideous and sinful and offensive bride in his eyes, that by his own blood he would cleanse her, that by his own righteousness he would beautify her and give all of himself to her and take all of her unto himself and join together in holy eternal matrimony and forever call her his beloved. The apple of his eye, his delight, his precious bride whom he would never leave nor forsake. This is the gospel of God's glory. And the church is the kingdom of God filled with ugly sinners who have come to Christ because they have seen not only their own ugliness, but they have seen the beauty of His grace. And so 
We are washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, come to Jesus in the full nakedness of your sin, laid bare before Him who sees it all, and let Him clothe you with His righteousness. Let Him cover you with His holy love. Do not be proud and regard Him as the stone of offense, but lay down your pride, repent of your sinfulness, and embrace Him as the cornerstone, the only solid rock on which you can stand because all other ground is sinking sand. And church, let, the, let, let this parable remind us of this truth that we hold dear that by the grace of God alone, we are who we are. That we are sinners saved by grace. Great sinners with the great Savior. As Christians, we must be the humblest and lowliest of people knowing that everything in life is but undeserved grace from Him. That we are entitled to nothing, and yet we have received everything in Christ alone. And we are everything in Christ alone. And even now unto eternity, remember that we cannot even bear fruit apart from abiding in Christ and resting our hearts daily in His saving and sustaining grace. And so may the gospel of your union with Christ continue to be your daily bread and feed and enrich your soul unto his glory. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we have looked into this parable that your son has spoken, we see the weight and urgency of receiving Christ. And I certainly pray that if there are any here today who have not, Lord, that you would soften their hearts and show them the sweetness of repentance and how sweet it is to trust in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we also see in this parable that in and through all the words of judgment and consequence of unbelief, we see at its very blazing center the love that you have shown us and that you gave your own beloved son for us. Thank you for the gospel and help us to to remain in him. And we thank you certainly that you have given us the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to teach us this, to teach us the rhythms of grace in our lives. And that as we take this bread and the cup, we are reminded that we cannot even function and live apart from your comprehensive grace toward us because you are our very food, that you are the very life that we live. And if you ever cease to sustain us and nourish us by your continued love, we would all wither away. But we thank you that you never will. And we take this bread and cup now as the emblem of your unfailing promise, proclaiming the certainty of your gospel. And we ask that you would build us up in the most holy faith by it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.